My name is JT Van Zant, and I'm a fly fishing guide on the Gulf Coast of Texas. Being out on the water has always been the secret to unlocking my soul. A sense of calm comes over me and I feel like I can breathe. That feeling inspires deep thought and conversation with my clients. I truly enjoy sharing perspective on the human experience with folks I take fishing. My podcast, Drifting, brought to you by Yeti, was created with the goal of capturing those candid conversations with people who inspire me and sharing their stories with an audience that has the same restless curiosity that I do. Thanks for listening to Drifting. Memories of childhood are often triggered by certain sights or smells or sounds. I remember time spent with my grandparents as a young boy in Hallettsville, Texas, and hearing the CBS news in the background, and the voice of Dan Rather reporting the day's events as my grandmother fried pork chops, and my grandfather sat in his rocking chair smoking Salem's and sipping Seagram 7 and 7-Up. That same voice was present in my adulthood as I tuned into any major event that was happening in our country. Dan Rather has covered every major news story in modern American history. Political elections, natural disasters, conflicts overseas, you name it, he was there. He's a man of high integrity, intelligence, great perspective. My fondness of Dan went through the roof when I had the opportunity to fish with him and his son, Dan Jack. The fishing was slow, so I rode the boat all day and grilled Dan with questions about his career. He gave thoughtful answers and recalled hundreds of stories with pinpoint accuracy. When I decided to try my hand at this podcast thing, he was at the top of my list of potential guests. I asked him and luckily he agreed to sit down with me. I came to tears when he described his time as a boy with his grandmother Paige in Bloomington, Texas. And I benefited greatly from his advice to me as a man of this country and as a father to my sons and a husband to my wife. It was a privilege and I'll never forget it. I'm happy to share this insightful discussion with an American broadcasting legend, Dan Rather. You know, Dan, uh, not long ago I had the opportunity to fish with you and I, I didn't quite believe it was real until you stepped on the boat. <laughs> we had some pretty slow bass fishing that day, if I recall, a little overcast, conditions weren't great. Your son, Dan Jack, stuck with it and was powering casts against the bank all day <laughs> and came up with a single nice bass that I took a photo of you guys with. Um, well, that's true. Uh, Dan Jack's a whole lot better caster than I am, which is damning with faint praise, but he's a pretty good fisherman. We had a great day in the water. Based on the on the lack of productivity from the fish, I actually got to spend a lot of time talking to you and gaining perspective from your life and your career. And uh, it's one of the highlights of... of occupationally and just personally, um, to spend time with you. I, I might've told you, I might not have that growing up in the summertime with my grandparents in Hallettsville, Texas, not too far from Wharton where you were raised. Um, I would basically be making a ruckus and my, my granddad would hush me when, when the nightly news came on <laughs> and I would pull a blanket over the floor vent where the AC would come up through the floor and the, tri- and the mobile homes and just sort of get comfortable. And I would be sort of just put to ease by the sound of your voice. Um, and then as I grew older, I counted on that same voice for pertinent information in our society. And so I, I'm just really honored to have been able to spend time and get to know you a little bit. And thanks for that opportunity. Well, listen, you're welcome. But the honor is mine, Jay-Z, to fish with a, a great caster and a great, great fisherman that you are. Uh, wow, what an afternoon we had. Actually, we had all day on the river. Cause we, we sure we did. We had lunch on the river. You told me about your trips to visit Fidel and how he loved Cuddy Sark. Yeah. <laughs> you told me about the struggle of uh, deciding whether or not to follow the demand of of uh, Saddam Hussein asking you to kiss him on the cheek and knowing what that could do to your career back I home. Hold and the hands with him. Hold yeah. hands with him, excuse me. Um, ultimately, you chose not to and got sat in a, in a bare room for a while, right? <laughs> true, Before true enough. whisked off to the embassy. Well, you know, it, uh, we'll get to business in a minute, JG, but um, I have a connection with Hallisville, a small connection. You know, I went to college at what was then Sam Houston State Teachers College, a very small teachers college at the time. It's a big state university now. But one of my sweet mates in college for the first couple of years was um, Wee Willie Kabinka. 
from Hallettsville, Texas. Oh, the, really? The Kapinka family was big in Hallettsville. Hallettsville not being very big. He was, uh, his lower extremities were made uh, limp by polio. And he was the first person that I had ever seen with that condition who would drive a car. Mm. That he had uh, all of the clutch and gear shifting was he could do with his hands. He had a specially equipped car. And I have very fond, he's, he's now passed, but I have very fond memories of Kabenka, who taught me a lot uh, in his own way without ever intending to, that he was so determined to be a, you know, a success in life. A success for him was to be an air conditioning engineer, which he became. Air conditioning, we're talking about the 1950s, and air conditioning was fairly new, particularly window air conditioners, that sort of thing. And little Sam Houston had a very small department to train people to maintain and repair air conditioning. So Kabinka was an air conditioning major at Sam Houston. But what he taught me was, with just way, the way he lived his life, he had these physical challenges, but it never stopped him from doing anything. He dated girls. He... he uh, played a little football, and you could say, well, how did he do that? It's a long story. But, you know, he just refused to let his vulnerabilities and what could have been his weaknesses be anything but strengths. Hmm. And it was a very good lesson for me to learn when I was 18, 19 years old. So I owe we Willie Kabinka from Hallettsville, Texas, quite a lot. <laughs> do you think his parents didn't cut him any slack? Of course, there must have been love or he wouldn't have been successful that's very, that's, in that mindset, That's very right? insightful. That uh, his being a suite mate, you know, we had uh, we had rooms on either side of a bathroom, and everybody had a roommate, and you had suite mates. But two things: uh, he was enveloped in, with love by his family, had a very tight what used to be called nuclear family, and that was one thing. And the second thing was, particularly, his father never cut him any slack, never allowed him to use his infirmity as an excuse for anything. And when he could talk pretty eloquently, he was not normally an eloquent fellow, to say the least, but he could talk eloquently about how uh, important that had been to him. Was that similar to your childhood? Well, in some ways it was. Uh, as I may have mentioned to you, I had rheumatic fever between the ages of roughly 11 and about 14. This was in the 1940s, and at that time, rheumatic fever was an incurable disease. It was every mother's nightmare, second only to polio. Uh, but I contracted uh, rheumatic fever. It attacks your lower joints. It stiffens up all of your lower joints, starting, start, starting with your, your toes, working up to your ankles and knees. And the danger is it will reach your heart. And most people who've had rheumatic fever during that period, I repeat for emphasis, is completely curable now. But during that period, the great danger was it would get to your heart. Most people suffered heart uh, problems later in life because it had rheumatic fever. The doctor, a young Dr. Lewis Cope in Houston, who's now passed, who diagnosed that I had rheumatic fever, told my mother uh, to her soon-to-be completely white-faced terror that there was no known cure for it and that the only thing he could prescribe is to put me to bed and have me move as little as possible. Just stay in bed, don't move, and if we're lucky and have God's grace, maybe it won't reach his heart. So I, in answer to your question about what I shared by distance with my friend uh, Kabinka, was that I was bedridden for one time, oh, almost nine months and for another time just over a year by the stay in bed, don't let it move thing. And I will say that looking back on it, I didn't realize it at the time, that it gave me a, a strong, at a very early age, sense of mortality. That saying to myself, if I ever get up from here, boy, am I going to live. I want to play football. I'm going to be a great reporter. I'm going to be all these things. That uh, because at that age, we're talking about 11 to 14, normally you don't think about your mortality. Certainly not. But yeah, it, a healthy it, boy, it, that's the last so thing on it, his mind. You know, it, I'm not sure that this is psychologically uh, uh, 
can be supported by psychological science. But I do think it was a great motivator for me because when I did finally get up and I finally recovered from rheumatic fever, and thank God to this day, I did not have any heart problems. Every doctor I go to, when they ask me, what have you had in a check rheumatic fever, they right away say, well, what's the matter with your heart? And I'm proud to say to them, there's nothing wrong with my heart because yes. my mother made sure that I stayed in bed during that time. But when I got up, uh, and my father made a, a really smart decision. I was emaciated, you know, just absolutely so thin. You, I turned sideways, you couldn't see me. And uh, I was very weak. And uh, my father said in my presence to my mother, uh, we have to get him to work. He has to do manual labor. That's the only thing that will save him. So I went to work in a brush cutting crew after that. And it took me a while, but I got my strength back. And that was a very important uh, decision by my father. Now, was he empathetic throughout this process of you being bedridden? He was a, a laborer by trade. He was. He was a laborer and worked long hours. And it was his job to be uh, on the job uh, just before the sun came up because working, digging ditches in the Texas sun can get to be tough. So you want to dig, you dig the best and the, the most uh, and the hardest. Uh, early in the morning and late in the evening. So he worked long hours and very hard. But to answer your question, he was very empathetic. He oh, and my wonderful. mother, both of them worked. My mother was a waitress. Um, they were both empathetic and you know, just wonderful to, to me during that, that period. Just, you know, I was completely enveloped in love, uh, not pity. Mm -hmm. There's a difference. And enveloped in love, but not pity. Very interesting point because we're so safe with our children now and we, we don't want them to experience any hardship and we keep, you know, it's, it's, it wasn't unusual when you were a boy in Texas to have a, a 410 shotgun before you were 10. Well, I had one. And, so, and now <laughs> we, we argue with our wives of whether a BB gun at 13 is even appropriate. Well, it's a different world now, to say the least. And, uh, you know, a discussion of guns and the fact that we are a gun culture, not just in Texas, but our whole country is a gun culture, uh, that I grew up with guns. My father loved to hunt and fish. He liked fishing a little better than hunting, but only a little better. <laughs> uh, but there were great differences. For one thing, while I, I did have a BB gun first, at, I think age five or six, fairly quickly went to a single shot 22. That's the way you didn't work your way up to uh, 310. And then eventually got a high-powered rifle. And I did grow up hunting and fishing. I shared my father's passion for it. Uh, but you were taught, first of all, gun safety. You were really taught about gun safety. You were also taught, and this has gone badly out of fashion, I'm sorry to say, the ways of the animal. For example, you start out hunting squirrel and rabbit, but before you ever hunt them, your father and my Uncle John and various friends would teach you the life cycle of the animal, the habits of the animal. The whole idea, and I recognize this was like some people now is crazy or odd, but it was very common in those days, that you didn't hunt anything until you learned the ways of the animal. The idea was you, you were to feel one with the animal now, I know some people listening to this might say, well, then you go hunt and kill them. Well, yes, but it's hard to explain, but it was that if you were decent and ethical, you didn't hunt anything that you weren't going to eat, and you didn't hunt them until you could kind of feel the oneness with them. I recognize it, it in here in the second decade of the 21st century, it may sound rather odd, but it was the way things were done at that time. And it's beautiful. Uh, we've lost a little bit as we've lost part of that process along the way, haven't we? Well, we've lost a great deal yeah. along the way. You know, I was invited some years ago when I first came to New York to uh, hunt. Uh, a friend of mine asked me to go deer hunting. And uh, I hadn't deer hunted in some years, but I went with him mostly for the camaraderie of being with him. But when we got out, we got to a hillside in northeast New York. The hillside was completely covered with men with high-powered rifles. And I'm say saying to myself, this is insane. And going through my mind was, it has to be that many of these people don't know anything about guns. They work on Wall Street or they work somewhere in the city, and they're just 
out for the first time and what a dangerous situation this is. And I said to my friend, uh, I, I can't go there. He said, well, why not? Come on, this is the way we hunt up here. And I said, well, it's not a hunting I recognize. I'm not going to get out of the pickup truck because uh, I'd already been in some dangerous situations as a reporter. But I, I could be dumb as a fence post about a lot of things, but I was at least smart enough to know how dangerous that was. Um, can you talk a little bit more about growing up in Wharton, Texas back then? Well, uh, I was born in Wharton, um, JT, I didn't actually grow up in Wharton. Moved to Houston shortly after. Right? Yes. My my father basically dug ditches for pipelines, and they were building a pipeline from somewhere down around near Quero, Texas, okay. uh, to Houston. And uh, he met my mother in Victoria, Texas. You draw a line from roughly Quero up to Houston and go through Victoria. He met my mother in Victoria, married her there. I think I probably was conceived in either El Campo or Edna, there on a line going toward Houston, and then was born in Wharton. So it was kind of an accident that I was born in Wharton because okay. as the pipeline progressed, they moved from Victoria to Edna to El Campo, then to Wharton. So I was in Wharton for the first year and a half of my life. I have no early memories of it because I was an infant and a toddler. And then we moved to the very edge of Houston, a place called the Houston Annex, Heights Annex, which what at that time was literally, we lived on the next to last street in the city limits in Houston. And beyond that was a great forest and Buffalo Bio. And uh, I spent a lot of my youth, uh, in fact, nearly all of my youth was spent there. Uh, basically, our playground was a big meadow, a big pasture, uh, just beyond her house, and beyond that was the bio and the woods. Did you do some squirrel hunting in those woods? I, I did do some squirrel hunting in the woods, but, but, but my, my father and I hunted squirrel, but we most of the time hunted squirrel in what is now known as Timberland. These are suburbs of Houston. Mm -hmm. uh, and Katy, we hunted squirrel, rabbits around Katy, and later hunted ducks. You know, I hated duck hunting. I love being outdoors. Of almost anything in the outdoors, but oh man, did I hate duck hunting. Get up early in the mornings and out there in the wet, cold. It's hard to make them tasty, too. Yes. Well, and to tell you the truth, I wasn't much of a shot on the ducks. You can argue I wasn't much of a shot on anything, <laughs> but I certainly wasn't very much on the ducks. Can you talk a little bit more about when you say you observed the animal and became one with the animal you were going to be privileged to hunt? What was that process like? Well, the process was like, uh, first of all, uh, my father and my Uncle John and uh, their friends, who were all hunters, would talk about the squirrel. They would talk about the habits of the squirrel, the mating habits, gestation period, birth period, uh, learn about something about the history of the squirrel with the Indians, uh, what we now call Native Americans, uh, and how important the squirrel were to them, particularly to the East Texas Indians. And so you got some of it word of mouth, if you will. Then a book, maybe an encyclopedia, read up on squirrel. And then you would take a kind of advanced course, if you will, in which without any weapons, you go out into the woods and you sit and you watch the squirrel. Watch the squirrels for hours on end and kind of whisper a little bit and come back home and talk about what you had seen all by way of just making you feel as much as possible one with the animal. And all that observation, I'm sure you, you, you pick up quite a bit on their habits and their interactions. They, they play a lot with each other. They torment each other. They chase do. each other around. <laughs> well, and also the most productive place uh, to hunt squirrel is where uh, uh, the hardwood meets the pine. The uh, pine being, you know, very tall trees and the hardwood producing nuts. So any place you can find where the hardwood meets the pine. Well, I'll be on the that, lookout for that. That's prime squirrel hunting. That's a new one to me. <laughs> Do you know why? Well, as I say, I think it was because of... a combination of, of the pine trees gave them uh, height uh, against predators, man as well as other animals, and the greenery and pine combs, and the hardwood uh, also gave them, because hardwood tends to be leafier, uh, plenty of hiding places, and hardwood produces nuts. And nuts are, of course, the, the main nutritional 
uh, value that squirrels have. So just take it from me. Where the hardwood meets the pine, there'll be, there'll be squirrel. I'll be lucky. <laughs> you knew at a pretty young age what you wanted to be, didn't you? I did, JT. Uh, in that sense, I've been very lucky and mightily blessed. I've never quite known the reason, but all I've ever aspired to be in a professional way uh, is a journalist. Although, note that in my time and place, when I was being formed, which was Texas, during the Depression years of the 1930s, nobody used the term journalist, except everybody used the term reporter. A journalist was a reporter with a cane, an older... <laughs> but um, when we played those games when I was, you know, as early as five, six, seven years old, the games you play, what do you want to be when you grow up? Somebody say, I want to be an Indian chief. Somebody say, I want to be an airplane pilot. Astronauts were unknown at that time. I always said, I want to be a reporter. I've never known why that is, but my suspicion is as follows, that neither my mo mother nor my father had finished high school. It sounds a bit odd today, but in that time and place, Texas, 1930s, it was not unusual. Uh, neither one had finished high school. Uh, but they were far from being dumb people. Oh, uh, and one reason is they were avid newspaper readers. And I grew up in a home, my earliest memories of my parents reading papers. My father had newspapers stacked in corners. My mother was always on to throw some of those darn newspapers away. But they read newspapers, they absorbed newspapers, they discussed what was in the newspapers. Other family members came over and they would have discussions. Remember, well, about the time I was becoming a memory age, uh, what Winston Churchill called the gathering storm was underway in Europe. The forerunners of World War II, Hitler was coming to power. Uh, and they would have these discussions about in the paper. And here's the point. I think in, in my very young mind, four, five, six years old, because my parents spent so much time with the newspapers, I can remember my father saying time and again, the newspaper is the poor man's university. And they viewed it that way. Well, because they spent some time in the newspapers, I think I came to believe well, it must be important what's in the newspapers, and that led to thinking, well, if you could work for a newspaper, that uh, would be important. Interesting. You picked up uh, the, the, uh, the intensity that they studied the, that source of information, and for you it must have been all important. Uh, well, exactly, and seeing them do that, read the paper, discuss the paper, even next morning... Uh, there was always a morning paper at that time. Newspapers were big. Um, radio was beginning to come on. Television was unknown. And in Houston, you had three daily newspapers, three daily newspapers, Houston Post in the morning, Houston Chronicle in the afternoon, Houston Press sort of in between, slightly afternoon paper. But even before uh, my father would go to work, and he went to work very early, uh, they would just devour the Post. Uh, but... Among my fondest memories, my father uh, would not only discuss uh, newspapers, but he would uh, critique newspapers. And we went through, it was sort of humorous at the time, it's become even more humorous to me in memory, that my father would read an editorial in the Houston Post in which he disagreed with the editorial opinion. He would tell my mother, drop our subscription to the Houston Post. I'm not dealing with the Houston Post anymore. Then he would read the Houston Chronicle for a while, and they would have an editorial he didn't like. He would throw the newspaper against the wall and say, Burrow, drop our subscription to the Houston Chronicle. Same thing with the Houston Press. And for a short period of time, the only paper we had was the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, which came by mail from St. Louis, and the Christian Science Monitor. This is when my mother talked him into, a, we should take the local newspapers again, Irvin. So we'd go through the routine again. But... <laughs> <laughs> Tell something you ticked him off. <laughs> now, despite his reliance on that stream of information, when he found out that being a journalist was all important to you, he, he didn't agree with that career choice, did he? No, it, it, was, it was less that he didn't agree with it. He didn't understand it. Uh, and it, this has always been a bit of a puzzle to me because when I began to say uh, as early as junior high school, uh, I want to work at, work at a newspaper. I want to work. My father would say, well, no, you want to be an engineer. Keep in mind that for him, in the ditch. 
when an engineer would come for the pipeline company or something, it was like seeing a Marine or Army general, and he held engineers in great reverence. Yeah, the man was so the plan. His, his dream for me was to become an engineer. If I could have become, if, if I could have become a petroleum engineer, that to him would have been the absolute ultimate goal. But keep in mind that he hadn't finished high school, never been on a college campus, and you know his view was, quite frankly, that I probably I might leave school at age 16, as many people did in our neighborhood, many young men, go to work in the oil field, maybe get a job as a roustabout, eventually become a roughneck, uh, which I did later on in the summers. But the point is that he couldn't grasp what going to college really meant. Mm -hmm. He wasn't opposed to my going to college, uh, but he questioned, was this a damn fool idea Right. Or an empty dream. First of all, how are we going, how are we going to get him to college? Uh, I'm not playing humble beginnings here, uh, but money was very tight, and sometimes there wasn't any. So the idea of my going to college to my father was just uh, an empty dream. For my mother, it was a driving dream. That my mother's view was: if we can just get Dan to college, I have a younger brother and younger sister. Her idea was: first of all. In the world that he, Dan, is going to be moving into, college is going to be really important. But secondly, if I can just get him to college and get him through college, first of all, get him to college, then get him to stay to college, then there's a better chance that his brother and sister will also go to college. So my mother had a driving dream of my going to college. It wasn't that my father was opposed, but he just thought it was an impossible dream. I mean, how are we going to pay for it? How is he going to support himself? I mean... He just couldn't grasp it. And when I began talking about going to college, because when I started hanging around newspapers, running coffee and sort of hanging around, that most of the reporters at that time had not been to college. Some of them had not finished high school. But uh, when I would ask them for advice or counsel, without exception, they would say, look, in your time, Dan, if, if you haven't been to college, you probably aren't going to be able to get a job in journalism. So that's when going to college uh, became a goal of mine. And when I talked about going to college, my father basically dismissed it. And then when it became clear to him as a combination of my mother's determination to get me there and my desire to be there, he said, well, if you're going to college, I mean, journalism, reporting, he couldn't quite grasp it, even though he was a great fan of newspapers and read of newspapers. He just had this sense, you won't be able to make a living at that. In his world, you made a living with your back in your hands or a combination of your back in your hands and being trained as an engineer. Mm -hmm. So again, he wasn't opposed to my going to college, but he just thought it wasn't, wasn't possible, certainly very improbable. But if I was going to go to college, then he couldn't envision spending four years uh, doing something. When I got out of college, I might have trouble getting a job, might be able to make it. He just couldn't grasp the whole thing. Yeah. So, I want to be, make clear here, I'm not being critical of him. because I, Absolutely. He, he, he came from, a, in many ways, a different cosmos. Well, I, I think the, the most important thing for me that you said that warms me about him is that he was compassionate and empathetic to you and was loving as a father, albeit probably pretty stern and, and strict as was the time. But, but there was love, there was obvious love and compassion for you. He was just confused about the route you were taking to get there. Exactly. But not condemning of your choice. No, but after I got out of college and I spent a very short time in the Marine Corps, uh, I have one of the shortest and least distinguished records. Because of rheumatic fever, right? Oh, uh, Came back right. to haunt you again. Yes. Well, rheumatic fever was a so-called disqualifying disease. Uh, but by the time I was 18, I recovered from rheumatic fever, had played football, worked in the pipeline ditch, worked oil field deck floors, and uh, knew I was physically fit. So I'm not proud of it, uh, but I, I lied about it. Uh, when you go to apply to get in the Marines, they say, have you ever had, and they have a list of things that are automatically disqualifying. And when it came to rheumatic fever, I didn't check that I'd had it. Uh, after I got in and had trained for a while, 
Um, they found out about it, asked me about it, and uh, I leveled with them and said, well, yes, I did have it, but I'm over with it now, and just almost immediately I was out. But at any rate, uh, after I graduated from college early, uh, I graduated in the summer of 1953. I'd started midterm 1950. Immediately joined the Marines. The Korean War was on. It was beginning to wind down, but it was still on. Went to the Marines, and when I came back from the Marines, I had a hard time getting a job. There was a slight recession, nothing like 2008, but there was a bit of a recession. And I just couldn't get the time of day anywhere uh, for a job in journalism. And I applied for any number of jobs. Uh, you know, uh, one was being a safety engineer at a steel mill on the outskirts of town, that sort of thing. And my father was very encouraging during that period because I can't say I was depressed, but it, it was a low time for me yeah. uh, that I loved the Marines. I loved everything about it. And I, I really fought very hard to stay, but it, it didn't work out. So, you know, I was out of the Marines, didn't have a job, having trouble getting a job. Uh, but my father was somewhat encouraged because I began to apply for jobs such as the safety engineer and uh, there was a oil refinery uh, assistant pipe fitter or something. So he thought, okay, that's, that's a path he understood. But he recognized that I was just aflame with the passion to be in journalism. And he, he did give me not a lecture, but he gave me an encouraging talk of, well, if that's, if that's your passion, if that's what you want to do, I don't understand it and implicitly implicitly he was saying, I think it's a damn fool idea, but uh, don't give up, be persistent. You know, he was, he was a great preacher of the gospel of persistence and said, you know, even if you take one of these other jobs, you ought to be persistent about it. It was very good. And much later, just shortly before he died, uh, I had gone, uh, well, I worked for the Associated Press and worked uh, uh, around a few local newspapers, uh, but I was a very poor speller, which is a bad weakness to have. If we if we had had spell check when I was coming up, I'd probably still be a newspaper man. <laughs> <laughs> so there's hope for me as well. But I'm at hearing. any rate, I had wandered I had wandered uh, from uh, being a failed newspaper man into radio, and then had gotten a job at the local television station. This was in 1960. And at the television station, while I think my first salary there was either $9,500 a year or $10,000 a year, but after coverage of Hurricane Carla in 1961, in which our station went from a bad third to a first, I got a raise. Uh, and the raise was to $12,000 a year. My father at that time was making the most money he'd ever made. It was $12,500 a year. I was making 12000 I wasn't making as much as he was, but I was getting in the neighborhood. When CBS offered me a job in the wake of covering Hurricane Carla, the television station, which didn't want me to move to CBS because we were doing well in the ratings, said, we'll raise you to 12500 and maybe eventually $13,000 a year. My father was very proud of that. He said, he said to me, he said, you know, I'm very proud of the fact my son is going to make more than I do. <laughs> and when I got the job at CBS News and the pay was 17-2, and I came back and told my parents I was going to take the job at CBS, partly because I was fairly recently married, had two young kids, and it paid 17-2. That mm. my father... A rare thing for him, I only recall seeing him do it one or two times or literally uh, teared up just a little bit. This was, this was not in his character at all. Teared up a little bit and he looked at my mother and he said, you know, I think Dan someday may make $25,000 a year, which to him was, you know, astro uh, astronomical. Well, right out twice. But unfortunately, uh, only about three and a half months after I went to work at CBS News, he was he died instantly in an automobile accident. Oh. I'm really glad he got the opportunity to share that he was proud with you. Well, so am I. Absolutely. Um, 
you know, if you look at your body of work, it's just staggering. UT right now has an exhibit, basically an archive, and they put together a website, danratherjournalist.org. Um, you are considered one of the most important people in America, amongst the most impactful citizens in this country for the work you've done, decades and decades. What makes you Dan Rather? Where did that come from? How did you become so determined and, and get the work ethic that you have and make such an impact on the world of news? Well, thank you very much, GT. And JT, and I'm, I'm not going to sit here. Thank you, JT. I, I'm not going to sit here and uh, look down and run my hands around the brim of my hat, look at my boots and say, oh, shucks. Uh, however, uh, I'm not one of the most important people in my community, much less uh, our country or in society. Just simply not true. Uh, that I have a lot of faults, uh, and including the kind of arrogance and conceit that can only come being a television anchorman sometime. Mm -hmm. But uh, I have this part of my life, the professional life, finally in some perspective, um, that what you're looking at here across the table here and sharing cups of coffee is what I am at base, I'm a reporter who got lucky, very, very lucky. Now, it is true that, you know, I've worked hard, uh, I've always prided myself on being a hard worker because my father was, that I, that I got from my mother and father. And to your question of whatever I have become, keeping in mind uh, that I'm basically a, a, a workaday reporter who got really lucky. Uh, the work ethic definitely came from my mother and father. They were very hardworking people. Uh, they... They shored that up, the example they said, by words of saying, you know, you got to work. And my father, at a reasonably early age, uh, told me once, he said, you know, the biggest compliment uh, that you can pay a man is that he's a good hand in the oil field and in the ditches. A good hand meant being a really good worker. And that the, mo the most important thing in your life in terms of your work is you get the reputation of being a good hand. And so the work ethic part uh, came from my, basically from my mother and father. Uh, it also came from the, that time having rheumatic fever. Oh, I mentioned before, yeah. when, I, when, I, when I got up from rheumatic fever... The sense of your mortality. And uh, said, you know, life is not a given. Whatever you're going to do, you better get up this morning and do it. And my father's, you know, ringing my ears with his words of, you got to get up early, stay late, work hard and smart in between. He had a number of things like that he would say. He was fond of saying, for example, that, and not everybody agrees with this, but remember, he worked as a pipeline ditch digger. Well, you go out on the truck in the morning, you get off the truck. And the first time I worked in the pipe gang, which was age 15, I guess, I worked as a brush cutter before that. But he said to me, don't forget, when you get off in the truck in the morning, what are the two questions you ask, Danny? And I said, well, I don't know. He said, two questions you ask, who's the boss and what does he want? Uh, so this, the, the work ethic definitely came from my parents and the, the example that, that they set. The pride in the, the work. The driving dream, uh, you know, my, my polar star, my navigational star, what, when I take compass readings professionally, what I'm... I dreaming dream about being a, a, a good, if not a great, journalist came from somewhere deep within me, as I say, as I saw my papers, uh, my parents read the newspaper. Uh, but I will say that whatever, quote, success, unquote, I've had, I, I do attribute to the fact that I have tried to work hard and that I, I've always had my eye on the unreachable star of being a great reporter. Nature has always been a big part of your life and not a well-known fact about you. Can you can you tell us how you got in contact with nature and, and how you stayed in touch with nature? Well, uh, I appreciate you noticing, and it, it is, that let's face it, for a good part of my life, I have lived in an intensely urban environment. Washington, D.C., New York City, London, 
Saigon for that matter. Uh, but I spent so much time in nature when I was young, not just the hunting and fishing with my father, but I mentioned to you we lived right on the, the edge of town and beyond us was a, a great forest. Um, and I spent, you know, endless hours and sometimes full days and on into the evening in the woods, the forest uh, around Buffalo Bayou, which was just beyond our, our, our house. And that combined with the tutorials on the animals, squirrels, rabbits, for hunting purposes, gave me a, a love of nature. And I've always felt most myself when I'm in nature to this day, mm. that I live in a, you know, a concrete jungle in the middle of New York City and love it in some ways for its energy and all of that. But there's always a, a voice within me uh, about nature. And those woods uh, that I mentioned around Buffalo Bio, you know, they were, they were filled at that time with animal life. The bio itself was filled with uh, uh, fish and turtles. I remember we captured a, a, what we thought was a giant soft-shell turtle once. And we spent the whole day trying to capture him. And we finally got him wrapped up in grapevines. And we brought him back to the house, which was no small chore, <laughs> uh, in triumph. And put him in a wash tub, uh, a big wash tub it was. But when my father got home and saw him, he was appalled. And made Georgie Hoyt, who is my friend who lived across the street, he went with us to carry that soft-shell turtle all the way back, maybe a mile and a half at dark, to put him back in the, in, in the bio. So incidents like that and answer your question, that I, I always feel, frankly, most at home in nature. Uh, and I don't know that I could survive in New York City if we didn't have a place outside. We have a place in the Cascals on the Beaverkill River, small fishing cottage there. The Beaverkill is a great trout fishing river. But we're in the middle of a vast uh, woodland. There's a 55,000-acre state park practically abutting back up to our property. And uh, that's where I really feel at home. Or if we're fishing here some bass lake or along the Colorado, as you and I did, or uh, on the coast, uh, there's something about nature, and I don't want to be sacrilegious here, but when I'm in nature... I do feel I'm about as close to God as I'm going to get. And I consider uh, the great forest, you know, God's cathedral. To me, it's like being in church. Yeah. I know some people who chocolate that and other people will frown and say, well, it's not enough. And I do go to church not as often as I uh, should, uh, you know, established churches. But I, I do see the great woods and forests and places around rivers and, and lakes as as a cathedral. This Pope, Pope Francis, actually said that a lot of people um, derive their connection with God through nature. And that was, I appreciated that so much because as a Texan and a, a descendant of Southern Baptists, I've been guilty all my life for not going to church. And he made it okay. Look, I could, sir, well, I could talk to That's something else you and I shared, JT, <laughs> that uh, I was raised in uh, Baptist church at the West 14th Avenue Baptist Church in the Heights Annex. It's still there. It's under a different name now. They've changed names. I think it's called the Sunshine Baptist Church or something now. But it was um, him singing, foot washing, and total immersion. <laughs> <laughs> I, could, I could literally talk to you for days and days, but I know your time is extremely limited. A couple more things if I could, because sure. I know you got to run. Um, you mentioned how much we've lost as a society. Could you put that in a nutshell for us? Well, I'm not sure I can put it in a nutshell. For one thing, I'm, you know, I'm not a sociologist, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a historian, uh, working reporter, but I do think that among the things that have gone out of our society is a feeling for, for the land and a feeling for nature that we are still, in many ways, in our minds, a frontier people. And the frontier people were very closely allied and felt a kinship with the earth. I can remember one of my earliest memories of my grandmother Paige, who lived down in Bloomington, Texas. At a very early age, we were out one evening 
And she said, Dan, run, Danny, run your hands through the dirt. It's big black land loam, black loam soil down there. Run your hands through the dirt. And we literally ran my hands through the dirt. And she said, and then look at the stars. And which I did. And she said, you know, never forget that you're you're part of and you're tied to the earth and your destiny is in the stars. And this was a woman who had at best a fourth grade education. Mm. But back to your point of what we've lost, I think we've lost that that sense of of having our hands in the dirt, if you will, and our eyes on the stars. That the the pace of life the acceleration of the pace of life has encouraged us, but not forced us, to forget who we are, what we are. Uh, so that's one thing that's gone out of life. I, I do think that another thing that has gone uh, out of American life uh, over my lifetime, many things are much for the better. And as you and I, I think, we talk when I was along the river that I'm an optimist by nature and by experience, but you ask me the things that have gone out of our life. I think a, a sense of true patriotism in some ways has gone out because, and that may surprise some people, but I want to say because, partly with the encouragement sometimes of powerful people for their own partisan political and ideological purposes, have tried to get us to think in terms of nationalism as opposed to patriotism. And there's a difference between patriotism and nationalism. Patriotism has at its red beating heart, humility. Patriotism is saying, I love my country, literally to the point I'd give my life on the country. But I recognize that it's not perfect, that we're constantly striving to make it better and better. There's that humility and at the, at the very center of patriotism. Nationalism, on the other hand, has at its center, its core, a kind of conceit, a kind of arrogance. It says, you know, we're the best in the world. We always have been, we are now. We will be ongoing. Maybe a few things wrong in the country, but basically nothing wrong. So there's a great difference between patriotism and nationalism. And I do think that particularly over the last 35 or 40 years of my life, uh, there's been a tendency to confuse the two, and I worry about that some. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. And uh, finally, I, I, I wish so much that you could speak directly to my young boys, three and six, as adults, and hopefully that'll be a possibility. You're strong, and I think uh, hopefully we can all get in the same boat and go fishing someday. But if if you could give me a message of optimism that I could carry with me, because honestly, sir, I... That's the thing I lack right now. And I know you've seen turbulent times as great as this, and in terms of civil uprising, even greater. It seems like we're complacent in this sort of decay at this point. But can you give me a piece of optimism from your heart to deliver to my sons when they're of age to understand that message? I'll try. But first I want to address you. Okay. This is not unusual, particularly these days, for people to say to me here in 2018, uh, then rather, I'm scared. Uh, I'm, I'm frightened for my country. The direction is going. I'm frightened about what's happening in the world, and I'm frightened about myself and my family. It's a scary time. What I'd say to you, we'll talk in a moment about your children who are still of a very young age, is one, steady, just steady, that we have a lot of flaws and faults, we Americans, but throughout our history, by and large, we've been a very steady people and a society made up of steady individuals, so just steady. Secondly, no one appreciate your history, our history as a country, and for that matter, the history of the world. Then in the great arc of history, things get better. They don't always get better at any given particular time. But if you look at the arc, things get better, things improve. And be optimistic. Because the alternative 
is just dig yourself deeper and deeper in depression. But by being optimistic, we're talking about a realistic optimism. It's the kind of optimism to say, things can get better and will get better if I strive to make a difference and the people around me strive to make a difference. It isn't going to be better, future isn't going to be better for my children unless I take some responsibility in making it better. Mine is not some fuzzy-headed optimism just saying, well, everything's going to be all right, just rock along. No. So that's for you. For the children, I mean, the first thing is love. It's always love. I spoke of being enveloped in love in my own family and just love them. And the second thing is, with that love, never let the this flame of idealism die out. They're young now. They don't probably don't even recognize what idealism is. But there is a small, small flame. And as they get older, it's very important that, that flame grow a little bit. And never let them le- lose their idealism. That'd be about as close as I could come. I, I do want to say that I'm worried about the country now. And, and I do understand when people tell me that they're afraid, they're scared. Uh, these are perilous times, and it's a dangerous time for our country. I do think it's a, a rather pivotal time. We've had them before. We had a great civil war in which we lost maybe 700,000 brother against brother fighting. We've had, you know, great world wars. Uh, in the 1960s were very divisive. We've had periods before. But if we just stay steady, and say, I'm going to work to make things better and keep that flame of idealism going, then we can be and I think we will be all right. But in terms of your children, the, you know, the number one thing is, is love. They have to know that you love them. And then beyond that, you know, try to instill in them um, idealism, try to nurture that small flame along until the time may come if you if you're really lucky and God smiles and you work hard on them, that um, they will burn with a hot, hard flame of idealism. Dan, thank you so much for that message of wisdom, and I will carry that to my <laughs> Well, trust me, there's, no, boys, there's no wisdom in it, JT. It's been a pleasure, and I wish you uh, peace and joy uh, and love, and I uh, wish you good luck and Godspeed. Thank you very much, sir. I look forward to maybe seeing you up in the Catskills. Me, you, and Joan Wolf can wet a a line together up there. (laughs) Thanks, JT. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Thanks again for listening to Drifting, presented by Yeti and hosted by me, JT Van Zandt. To listen to more episodes, visit yeti.com or search Drifting on iTunes.